0: Let's even just say for a moment that he were an America First isolationist, that he actually really believed that. It doesn't matter, because he doesn't understand anything, and he's super easy to manipulate.
1: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do, get commercial-free versions of every episode, and occasional members-only bonus content, visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The David Pakman Show, Politically Reactive, Intercepted, Humorless Queers, and Le Show.
2: Donald Trump sent 59 Tomahawk missiles to Syria. This is the first direct action taken by the United States during Syria's six-year civil war. Varied claims about the accuracy of the 59 Tomahawk missiles, the U.S. claiming 58 of 59 hit their targets. Videos released combined with other sources claim that fewer than half of the 59 Tomahawk missiles hit their targets, and Russia, which has been supporting the Assad regime for years, was reportedly warned in advance about this strike, which is a detail that'll be relevant a little bit later when we talk more about what this all means about Russia. This was reportedly a reaction from Donald Trump to seeing the videos of the civilians, including children that died as a result of the sarin gas attacks last week, uh, believed to be at the hands of Bashar al Assad and the Syrian regime. What does this tell us about the Trump White House's attitude or philosophy towards Syria and foreign policy? Nothing. This is merely the use of a tactic absent any strategy. Remember that Donald Trump opposed military action in Syria for years. Trump was going to be the president who wouldn't get us into wars, like he said during the debates and the campaign, etc. unlike what supposedly Hillary Clinton was going to do for us. And there's been a ton of discussion about this action by Trump being unconstitutional. And that's true. Trump didn't get approval for Congress, something Trump himself said in 2013 that Obama would need to do in order to take action against Syria. Recall Donald Trump's tweet from August 29th of 2013. What will we get for bombing Syria besides more debt and a possible long term conflict? Obama needs congressional approval. Trump clearly in 2013 understood that a military response would require congressional approval, but he went ahead with military action without congressional approval. And this is an important criticism, Pat, but I think today we should focus on a criticism on the merits of this attack,
3: right? The constitutionality and whether it was a good idea or not are two separate things, but I think it's clearly unconstitutional. Yes. Uh, the Bush administration after nine 11 signed the authorizations for military force that allows them to fight Al Qaeda. And of course, Obama and Trump interpreted that to extent to ISIS because ISIS is an offshoot of Al
2: Qaeda. But this of, yeah. is the Syrian government. This yes. is a sovereign area. You can't, you're really stretching the boundaries of that argument to argue that it would cover this. And uh, then we'll also talk about what Donald Trump wants out of all this, if anything, if we can even discern it. So we're now seeing all sorts of elected officials, the neocons, the corporate Democrats, the further leftists, everyone has an angle here. You've got the neoconservatives who were against Trump moving in Trump's direction as a result of this, some of them anyway. You have libertarians and so-called constitutional conservatives moving against Trump on this. You've got corporate Democrats just confused because some of them want to oppose Trump, Trump, but. Have kind of wanted to go after Syria for a while now. So they're in a state of disarray, not knowing what they should be saying. The people I'm most sickened by are the, both the Democrats and Republicans and the independence party doesn't matter who were not on board with Trump up until four days ago. But now think Trump is doing well because he sent 59 Tomahawk missiles to Syria, which strikes me as absolutely depraved. And nine civilians, including four children, were killed as a result of these 59 Tomahawk missiles. And what did we get right there? There are many reasons not to strike Syria, depending on what your point of view is. If you want to unseat Bashar al-Assad and you're not willing to do boots on the ground, which Trump said he's not willing to do, military experts don't think that with airstrikes, you'll, you'll be able to get Assad out. So that would be a failed strategy. Now, we don't know if Trump actually wants Assad out because Rex Tillerson recently said, oh, the white house isn't really concerned with getting Assad out. But hypothetically, If the White House wanted Assad out, airstrikes aren't going to do it. And Trump claims he doesn't want boots on the ground. If the goal is to unseat Assad and Trump is willing to do boots on the ground, that would be a major reversal. I mean, the the entire, uh, you know, the last five years nearly of Trump tweets and campaign statements during the primary and campaign statements during the general election have been no incursion in Syria, no boots on the ground. I won't get us into wars. Uh, So that would be a big a reversal for Trump. And the other question would be, well, maybe the issue is just do airstrikes so you can tip the balance towards the Syrian rebels and they can get Assad out. Military experts also believe that that's unlikely to work. And if it did work, the Syrian rebel groups are not one group. You're talking about deeply fractured groups, many of them incredibly radical. So if it worked, which military experts don't believe it would and you get Assad out by, by emboldening the Syrian rebel groups, which of those groups takes over? And do you just create infighting among those groups who are far less diplomatically experienced than Assad? Not to give him any kind of praise, we're talking about a monster here do you really improve anything if you do that? Right. And
3: to get Assad out of power would mean much more than a symbolic attack. And that's what this was, a symbolic attack, because we didn't go after the runway at all. And this base was back up and running by the next day.
2: That's right. Uh, Bashar al-Assad's military was using this base the next day to fly planes. And lastly, whatever happens with the Trump Russia investigation, russia has been supportive of the assad regime for a while they are are not particularly happy with this harebrained strike and it could make them more belligerent and they might relish the opportunity for escalation not directly against the u.s but in the region generally so in total we have a strike here of dubious legality which is just the haphazard use of a tactic with no strategy and it risks escalation into a major powers conflict so what I'm getting to is this is likely an optics campaign from the Trump White House, but to make people think what? Remember my story. This is the perfect time for a false flag attack, not literally a false flag, but pointing out that with Trump's approval rating so low, the most effective way to most quickly bring up his approval rating would be to coalesce the country if the U.S. is attacked or get involved in some kind of military campaign to transmit strength days after our story, Noam Chomsky said the exact same thing, by the way. And this more broadly appears to be an appeal to start looking presidential. And again, it's a completely haphazard strategy or tactic rather. And it's sad to me that it actually works, that some people see someone launching missiles as more presidential rather than an erratic, confused leader. And we know it
3: works because Gallup has his approval rating now at 40%, which was up from 35, 37, just about a week ago. Yep. He's going to lose some support from the alt-right, maybe, who thought he was going to be non-interventionalist. Sure. But overall, it's going to improve.
2: And there's more to it. There's more to the double standard. Let's look at some other past tweets from from uh, Donald Trump, one in which he said, We should stay the hell out of Syria. The rebels are just as bad as the current regime. What will we get for our lives and billions of dollars? Zero. Also sending out a tweet back in 2013, again to our very foolish leader, do not attack Syria. If you do, many very bad things will happen and from that fight, the US gets nothing. Bottom line, anyone who's drawing any major conclusions from this about Donald Trump's foreign policy perspective is misguided. All this tells us is that the White House and Trump are clueless, erratic and aimless And Donald Trump, there are people who are seeing this and saying, oh, Trump clearly has revisited his foreign policy ideas and now we're getting a much deeper view into the Trump doctrine on interventionism. But no wrong. There is no principle or strategy or underlying beliefs that tie together what we're seeing here. It's disjointed confusion, throwing stuff at the wall to see what sticks. Now, if you're not against this type of military action. there's another hypocrisy. The same people who are saying that Trump was going to be a great and methodical leader when it comes to the use of the military. Some of those same people are commending Trump for changing his mind over a few hours and impulsively sending 59 missiles on a whim with no broader strategy. That is an, an incredible paradox to me. And then we've got to talk about Russia. If you're drawing major conclusions about Trump, Russia from this, you're also misguided. We have more news about dozens of meetings that Jared Kushner had with Russians that were not reported on Jared Kushner's application for a a, a top secret national security clearance. The fact that Trump did something that seemingly Vladimir Putin wouldn't like is not a big thing when you have so much else on the other side of the ledger. And again, because this is just a random haphazard tactic in the absence of a broader strategy, we can imagine a way in which this benefits both Trump and Putin. I mean, Russia's economy has not been doing well. Corruption scandals, Russian diplomats dying under suspicious circumstances, the crackdowns on dissent, an escalation in Syria uh, and with the U.S. by proxy could be good for Donald Trump to both transmit strength and appear to be distant from Putin and it could be good for Putin as he heads into his next election and wants Russia to be seen as the the the, the bold player on the world geopolitical stage so we cannot deduce anything so far about Trump Russia and in fact if we see Russia as relatively quiet about this and it's not clear that we're going to it could also be easily assumed that the warning of Russia ahead of time is part of the implicit or explicit statement that no more is going to be done by Trump. Many commenters are saying, oh, this is a distraction or a false flag or whatever. And, and many of them are getting slammed for that. You don't have to believe Pat in a far ranging conspiracy theory to believe that there could be ulterior motives for what we're seeing here. That is not uh, absurdly conspiratorial in any way.
3: Right. And we don't really know at this point yet if he just acted impulsively and saw the chemical attacks going on in Syria, which yeah. created a visual reaction to react, which is completely understandable. But sure. when you're in a position of power, you have to weigh all the factors there. Or if he's playing some sort of four dimensional chess. Right. He might be playing chess
2: where four, four dimensions playing it in time yeah. as well. Why not bring in the fourth dimension? I like it, Pat. But you're, you're also getting at the big hypocrisy here, which is this is what really proves it's a stunt to me. If Donald Trump was worried enough about what was going on there to the innocent kids and civilians that he decided to launch missiles to help people risking collateral damage and getting collateral damage. Remember nine people, including four kids died as a result of these bombings. Why won't Trump allow Syrian refugees to come to the United States? In other words, if not everybody in Syria is a terrorist and some of the people in Syria are worth taking military action over, how could those same people not be worthy of refugee status in the United States. If you support the strike because of the chemical attack by Assad, but you're against allowing the same people you're trying to defend to come to the United States as as refugees, that's complete and utter hypocrisy. And that is the biggest hypocrisy with what we're seeing in Syria. Last thing, Steve Bannon was removed from the national security council. And I said at the time, I don't think this makes a practical difference because before he was on the NSC, he attended that dinner where Donald Trump casually approved the botched Yemen raid, and I believe that Bannon will still be involved in national security decisions, a picture was released of Stephen Bannon sort of on the right top side of this picture in the Mar-a-Lago situation room when this uh, incursion was taking place. This is after Bannon was removed from the National Security Council. So I think we were right on that, Pat that this doesn't mean Steve Bannon is no longer going to participate in national security decisions.
3: Yeah. And uh, Steve Bannon's the chief strategist, which is by and large a political position. Obviously this move has political implications, but you'd like to think that he's acting on what's in the best interest of the country in in Syria (laughs) rather
2: than just what's going to get him reelected. Yeah, that's uh, wow. I mean, I know you're sort of saying this is what we would like to imagine, but uh, (laughs) we're talking about Breitbart propagandist Stephen Bannon here.
4: My reach is
3: global, my tower secure, my cause is noble, my power is pure, I can hand out a million vaccinations, or let them all die from exasperation, have them all healed from their
2: lacerations, or have them all killed by assassination, I can make anybody go to prison, just because I don't like them, and I can do anything with no permission, I have it all under my
5: So one of the things I feel like I've seen on social media in the last few hours is sort of this, this, uh, some people are like, this is why we shouldn't have had Trump as president. And then some people are like, are you really saying Hillary wouldn't be doing the same thing? And then some people are like, are you really saying Obama wasn't doing this? What is your thoughts about just the American government in general? Like, do you think that things would be different if president Hillary was in office? How do you, what do you think about what Obama was doing when he was in office?
6: I mean, well, Hillary made it clear that she that her her approach was going to be to increase the militarism. Hold up,
7: wait a minute. I really believe that we should have and
0: still should take out his airfields and prevent him from being able to use them to bomb innocent people and drop sarin gas on them.
5: Yeah, awkward. So that was Lady White Jesus herself hillary clinton at the women in the world summit in new york city on thursday april 6th before the airstrikes yikes apparently
3: bombing syria is bipartisan way to go america
6: I mean, the thing is, like we've we've acted like those are the only options. You know, you know either it's completely hands off, which, by the way, Obama was not hands off. We've been bombing in Syria since like 2014, and a lot of other other things that we did and didn't do uh, have also been, you know, affect have also been interventions in in Syria. Uh, you know. I don't know why. Let's, let's pretend this was a place that we, we care about and we have like, you know, have good feelings about. Let's say this, this were Italy or England.
5: <laughs> let's England. pretend it's a place we care about. Just that statement alone <laughs> is like, damn. Yeah. All right. <laughs> well,
6: cause no, because we don't really care about Syria. So let's pretend it's England. And now you've got this Brexit thing happening. Um, and, you know, we feel really bad about, like, the evil, uh, you know, pub guys who voted to Brexit. And they don't understand that England is better now that you can get mozzarella, like, without tariffs and stuff, right? So, we like, we want to intervene. Like, would we basically get the pro-Brexiters and the anti like, would we arm them? Or would we say, guys, let's come to the table, let's figure out what's going on, let's you know bring all the stakeholders in. We do not want this place to fall apart. We do not want you guys shooting each other, and we're not going to send like you know. Would we allow other like say, let's say like uh, the French, are like aha, we're going to finally send in like you know French jihadists or something? I mean, just like the <laughs> yeah. whole thing became insane. These are you know, so we don't care about Syria. We we just figured we could throw a lot of weapons at it, uh, and and something you know and, and just kind of see what happens that's because the 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 primary goal that obama stated was that you know the assad regime fall and so once that became the goal uh in the early days, then we couldn't sort of talk, you know, their, their principal orientation wasn't like, what do we do that's best for Syrians? And I think that, that question, I'm not saying that question doesn't now lead to an answer that, that includes us that has to be, you know, has to be t- removed, but that's not where the conversation ever started. And it's never the question that's being asked. So like we just keep not making decisions that are best for, for the people of Syria, because why should we, they're not human. I mean, we've this dehumanizing, of them as arabs as muslims as whatever has been happening for for a really long time
3: i think the thing you were saying before also i think politics gets in the way of a flexibility like in these situations you have to be willing to adjust depending on what's happened so you're saying like once obama says we have to get Assad out of there there's no other discussions there's no other way to do it Yeah.
6: yeah and also well you know he we were in negotiations with iran For how many years for that nuclear deal? And Obama made it clear he wanted that deal. So why not use that leverage? Wasn't willing. I mean, you know, I, listen, would I rather get a beer with Barack than with Donald? Like, clearly. But, you know, I'm also, like, I was kind of surprised in the last days of the Obama administration. Like, my Facebook feed became a bunch of, you know, just, just like, you would have thought Obama was the messiah.
4: Mm.
6: You know, and and then we get put into those corners. Because, yes, because something so much, like... (laughs) more vulgar is coming but I don't think we should suspend uh, critical thinking <laughs> But trust them, and me, I shall entitle my distrusting 'cause I've stood short, I've stood short to piss away.
5: Ladies and gentlemen. Introducing the seven group winners competing for best in show at the one. We
8: see these beautiful pictures at night from the decks of these two U.S. Navy vessels in the eastern Mediterranean. I am tempted to quote the great Leonard Cohen. I'm guided by the beauty of our weapons. Um, And they are beautiful pictures of uh, of fearsome armaments making what is for them a brief flight over this airfield. I'm guided by the beauty
9: of our weapon. You guys love the Tomahawk, don't you? We all love the Tomahawk. Oh, that's it's a great, great weapon and it's cheap. Tomahawk missile, we all love it. Good day for the Tomahawk missile.
2: 18 feet long, 1,000 pounds of ammunition, two feet wide. We
8: love the tomahawk. they precise push. weapon, terrific weapon. Plus, it's really easy to drive around. They sure. push a button,
6: boom. And it makes us proud, finally.
8: Brilliant strike. It was that's remarkable. A restoration of American moral clarity. America is back.
2: The Ronald Reagan-like muscle. This is just classic, classic showmanship. It's not even brinkmanship.
8: Yeah, I love it. A very strong move, very presidential.
2: Am I nuts? Or does he, something's wrong with his feet. I don't think
9: I ever find myself saying this on this, but you, I think, I think yeah. you're right. Yeah, right. he's got two left feet. That is certainly a first. Go uh, get
10: him, pal. Man. I'm so excited, and I just can't hide it. I'm about to lose control, and I think I...
1: Tonight I ordered
4: a targeted military strike on the airfield.
9: In Syria, from where the chemical attack was launched.
8: There's almost nothing that brings the warmongers, the hawks, the elites from both the Democratic and Republican parties together more than a cruise missile strike. Over the past week, we've seen the phenomenal transformation of Democratic Party heavyweights who just days ago were screaming from the mountaintops about the Trump administration effectively being a sleeper cell for Vladimir Putin and the Russians, we've seen them now transform into, at least on this issue, lemmings, heaping praise on Trump for his decision to rain cruise missiles down on a Syrian military base that, by the way, was back in operation almost immediately after the strikes ended. Now, that strike, uh, of course, was ordered by Donald Trump, supposedly in response to the Uh, chemical weapon attack in Idlib province that the U.S. is saying definitively Bashar al-Assad's forces conducted. There are reports that suggest that somewhere between 30 or 80 plus people uh, were killed in that attack. And the the pictures uh, are horrifying. Now, it, it may very well be the case that as the U.S. says, so it is. It's completely plausible that this was a chemical weapons attack. I personally believe Bashar al-Assad is a butcher and a war criminal. I wouldn't put it past him to order a chemical weapons strike. I wouldn't. But as we've seen time and again throughout the history of U.S. wars, the public is often not presented with evidence, not to mention solid evidence, that what those in power, the administration or other powerful individuals, that what they're alleging is actually True, or that it's the full truth. As journalists, our job is to hold those in power accountable, whether they're Democrats, Republicans, or some other iteration. And part of that means demanding evidence, particularly when it means war or military strikes, when people are going to die, not just U.S. soldiers, but also innocent people on the other end of our missiles and our bombs and our guns. Everyone knows the old adage, trust but verify. For journalists, that shouldn't be the policy. It should be distrust and verify. The great I.F. Stone put it best, all governments lie. And they lie to justify wars and aggression. 1846, Mexico invaded the U.S. Lie. 1898, Spain blew up the USS Maine in the Havana Harbor of Cuba. Lie. The U.S. opposed fascism in Europe leading up to World War II. Lie. 1964, U.S. warships attacked in the Gulf of Tonkin during Vietnam. Lie. 1990, Iraqi soldiers were ripping Kuwaiti babies from incubators and throwing them on the floor to die. Lie. WMDs in Iraq. Lie. Iraq worked with Al-Qaeda. Lie. We don't collect any personal data on Americans, on millions of Americans. Lie. And you know what? Many of these lies took lives lots of lives, millions of lives. And now the Trump administration is pulling out a classic in American war selling. Compare Enemy X to Hitler. It doesn't matter if the new Hitler used to be our ally. Enemy X is now Hitler. Panamanian dictator and CIA narco-trafficker, Manuel Noriega, when he outlived U.S. interests, he was just like Hitler. Saddam Hussein, after he fell out of favor with the United States and no longer was a worthy ally to kill Iranians, oh, he was Hitler. Slobodan Milošević, who had all sorts of deals with the Clinton administration before the disintegration of Yugoslavia began, oh, he has to be Hitler too. White House spokesperson Sean Spicer, he took it to another level, though. We didn't use chemical weapons in World War II.
1: You know, someone as despicable as Hitler, who didn't even sink to the to using
2: chemical weapons
8: hitler didn't even sink to the level of using chemical weapons what do you mean by that
2: I, I think when you come to sarin gas uh there was no he was not using the gas on his own people the same way that a shot is doing i mean there was clearly i i, I understand yes.
8: i'm just going to leave sean spicer's insane ahistoric comments right there right where they are and let them speak for themselves throughout history Those who have demanded evidence to support these assertions that lead to wars, they've been harassed, scorned, vilified, crucified in the news media and by the powerful elites of both political parties. Some have been accused of being traitors or siding with the enemy. And so many people, so many of the people who have a PhD in being wrong all the time, they're praising Trump right now for his cruise missile strike on Syria Hillary Clinton, who supported the Iraq War, who promoted the idea that Saddam had weapons of mass destruction. Hillary Clinton and almost every prominent congressional Democrat. Making sure that Assad knows when he commits such despicable atrocities, he will pay a price, is the right thing to do. Leaders of liberal think tanks. In this case, I think that uh, this was the right thing. I think uh, Donald Trump became president of the United States. I think this was actually a big moment. So
9: I would be doing everything I could on every front to increase our leverage. Because in the Middle East, if you're trying to do diplomacy without leverage, you're, you're playing baseball without a bat.
8: Have joined along with famed neocons like William Crystal. And hawks like John McCain and Lindsey Graham. It's the
2: beginning of a departure from the failed policies of the last eight years. The only constitutional requirement that exists regarding war is for Congress to put the nation in a declared state of war.
8: And they're all back together again, cheering this war on. Now, given this history, shouldn't we seek out dissenting voices and listen to what they have to say while... The decisions are being made while history is unfolding in front of us. Dissidents are often right, not always, but dissidents often turn out to be right. The only member of Congress that is questioning the official narrative about the Syria chemical weapons attack is Hawaii Congresswoman and combat veteran Tulsi Gabbard.
6: We, as the American people, should be concerned when any president of the United States launches an illegal and unconstitutional military strike against a foreign government. Uh, This is something that Congress has not authorized, and it's an escalation of a counterproductive regime change war in Syria that our country's been waging for years. First, for many years through the CIA covertly, and now overtly through President Trump's reckless military strike. A few
8: months ago, Tulsi Gabbard visited Syria, and she met with... Bashar al-Assad in Damascus. And boy, did the knives come out for Tulsi Gabbard ever since, including those from her own party. And it just intensified when she spoke out against Donald Trump's cruise missile attack.
9: Howard, how do you respond to Tulsi Gabbard? I think it's outrageous. Uh, There's a long, well-known history, both in our Intelligence Committee, Amnesty International, Doctors Without Borders. Every single one of these agencies has said that Assad is using chemical weapons. He's a barbarian. He's murdered half a million of his own people. I can't imagine how you could make a statement like that, especially being on the Foreign Relations Committee. I can't imagine what could possibly have been going through her head.
6: So you said that Gabbard should not be in Congress, that this
0: is a disgrace. All she's asking for is proof, though. Is, is that a if, you,
9: if you're on the Foreign Relations Committee and you haven't seen the proof in the last five and a half years that Assad is a butcher and used chemical weapons, there's something the matter with you.
8: Now, I'm sure I'm going to get attacked for this. And frankly, I don't care. But I believe that especially right now, we need to act upon the principle that we need to see evidence, that we need to question deeply decisions that lead to war or military action, especially given the fact that we have an expanding number of U.S. wars being waged, both covert and overt around the globe today.
11: We'll have a way
1: cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing whether that be rejecting consumption altogether consuming sustainably or at least consuming in a subversive way.
7: I wanted to play this quick little clip of something that you said last year before the election. Um, so why don't we why don't we play that clip and then we'll we'll be right back. The reality, I think, is that Trump would
0: simply hand over the keys to the ki- kingdom to the deep state and say, "Do whatever you want. I don't want to know about it. Just make sure that you don't get caught," right? Like and and frankly, even if they did get caught and there was another major scandal like the torture scandal during the Bush administration,
7: I don't think he gives a shit. He's totally immune to criticism. So, before we get into the like substance of that quote, one thing that it made me think of is like this idea First of all, like credit to you, because you totally called this. And it really seems like that's what's happening. But because we're talking about healthcare, I just want to talk about this for a second. Like my impression has really been that Trump did not care about like what the policy was. He just wanted to win. Like, is that your impression? Yes, definitely. Absolutely.
0: (laughs) But also, I mean, in addition to that, though, you know, he like. Okay, let me back up for a second. So I read this really interesting piece, um, an interview actually it was with Masha Gesson in Politico. And as you may know, Masha Gesson is a Russian dissident journalist who actually had to leave Russia because she was facing homophobic, uh, threats to her and her family, um, in large part because of Vladimir Putin's, you know, right wing government and, you know, the rising fascist, uh, power structure there. So anyway, she has been a really interesting commentator on all of this Russia Trump stuff. And she's been mm-hmm. a voice of reason, actually, especially for someone who hates Putin as much as she does. Um, she has, you know, called into question what she calls conspiracy theories about um, the Russia Trump connection and things like that. And just the general democratic hysteria and the, you know, the pointing to Russia, instead of actually pointing to Trump and you know, examining Trump's positions and Trump's statements and the people that Trump has put in government and the fact that they're all liars and thieves and et cetera, et cetera. She says, you know, I'm not sure exactly why the Democrats are focusing so much on Russia when what we have in front of us is demonstrably horrific. So maybe we should talk about that. Um, she also thinks it's bad politics. Regardless, she said something really interesting in this interview with Politico where she said, um, she basically said that her heuristic, is essentially that the unimaginable will happen. And she was referring, of course, to Trump's election. And I thought that was really funny because my heuristic, I guess, is that the worst thing will happen. And I know that's terrible, but I really, that, it really is true. And so, you know, during the campaign, when people like Michael Tracy and were saying things like, well, Clinton is a warmonger, which is a demonstrated fact, um, and Trump is sort of an open book. Um, we don't know, or rather, you know, a closed book. We don't know what kinds of policies he would actually pursue, but he's made noises that sound isolationist, you know, this America first kind of stuff. And I just looked at all that and thought, that is completely fucking facile. There's no way that that's true. Um And it's true. It, you know, maybe I thought that in part because my heuristic is that the worst thing will happen, but I think it's also, it was, it was obvious, it was obvious to me too, because Trump is so clearly disinterested in information and in governing, right? Yep. And whereas Obama, you know, I, I had a lot of criticisms of the Obama administration's foreign policy. I had a lot of criticisms of Hillary Clinton's foreign policy. But what you could not say about Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama is that they were not immersed in the details of what they were doing. They, these are people who are clearly invested in the details of the policies that they are uh, pursuing, arguing for, and implementing. And it was just patently clear to me two things about Trump that distinguish them from Clinton and Obama. One is that Trump does not know how to read and is completely disinterested in learning any information about the world or how the U.S. government works. And two, that he's really fucking easy to manipulate, Right. Um, because he's so stupid and, you know, he's such an ignoramus and he, all he cares about is personal flattery. You know, he's just like a pathetic narcissist. So thinking about Trump, uh, let's even just say for a moment that he were an American first, an America first isolationist, that he actually really believed that. It doesn't fucking matter because he doesn't understand anything and he's super easy to manipulate. So even if that were true, even if it were true that he really didn't want the U.S. engaged in wars abroad, it wouldn't matter because the CIA and the Pentagon are full of really smart people who make it their job to try to convince and manipulate presidents to do what they want to do, um, which is frankly, you know, kill people abroad and do a lot of war. So it just strikes, it struck me as so foolish to imagine that Trump would be able to um, even enact that sort of isolationist policy. Um, And that is, of course, accepting the premise that that's really what he believed and that it wasn't simply another one of his lies. Um, So yeah, I mean, you know, now we're seeing obviously that that was total bullshit. You know, he's completely disinterested in, uh, in peace or anything resembling peace. Um, you know, there's a New York Times story from, uh, last week that says that, uh, as many as 200 people were killed in a, an airstrike that, um, is believed to be a U.S. airstrike. Civilians, I should say, in, um, Iraq. And, you know, there's, there's this remarkable quote in the New York Times story. It says, or rather, it's not a quote. This is the story itself. It says, quote, some American military officials had also chafed at what they viewed as long and onerous White House procedures for approving strikes under the Obama administration. Mr. Trump has indicated that he is more inclined to delegate authority for launching strikes to the Pentagon and commanders in the field. End quote. This is so fucking predictable that Trump is not interested. He does not want to know. He says to these, you know, impressive generals in their fancy uniforms with a bunch of buttons and shit on them. He's totally impressed by things like that. And he loves that sort of authority. You know, he worships it. He's a small man with a small brain who has a small sense of you know, self-esteem and probably looks at those guys and thinks, wow, you know, they're really strong. You know, he's obsessed with that word strength. You know, those, those are strong guys. I'm going to do what they say, right? Like, I want them to like me, you know, they're, they're cool. So I'll just do whatever they want, basically. And that's exactly what we're seeing. Um, Unfortunately, it was predictable and some people couldn't see it.
7: Well, and I saw a report last week that was saying that Trump gave the authority to the CIA to do drone strikes. Which is, like, way more authority just handed over than... And, like, Obama is not somebody who seemed like he was, like, not, you know, opposed to drone strikes. He used them to horrible ends. But, like, Trump is just like, okay, CIA, yeah, you want to do a drone strike? Do a drone strike. Like, it's, it's absurdly... Right, which,
0: you know, is going to oh. have, I think, yeah... I think it's going to have some uh, maybe unintended consequences, again, because Trump does not understand what he's doing, right? Um, he, of course, has he doesn't understand that the CIA and the Department of Defense have long had a turf war over the drone program. Um, he he probably doesn't know any of that history or care to know it. Um, and so, you know, he sort of just flies off the handle. It's like, yeah, you're you, you know, it's it's sort of like. The fa- the way in which he watches Fox News and then makes these insane policy pronouncements on Twitter about what Sean Hannity just said. Like, the last person who speaks to him who seems authoritative um, and mm-hmm. is a man, most likely, unless you're Kel- <laughs> Kellyanne Conway, is someone who... Um, is going to win the moment at least, right? Um, and it's not necessarily winning the day because Trump can, you know, change his opinion in five minutes. If someone else who has like a nicer suit and looks taller and stronger comes in five minutes later and says something more <laughs> confidently to him, he may very well change his mind. Um, but, you know, the, I, so yeah, it's a fucking colossal disaster. And you know, potentially 200 Iraqis are dead as a result of his complete disinterest in um, having any meaningful oversight or engagement in what the US military is doing abroad. So I don't want to make it sound like uh, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton had good foreign policy. That is not the argument that I am making. I disagreed with their foreign policy almost all the time. But it was clear that they were engaged decision makers who actually knew what the fuck they were doing, even if they were making bad decisions. Um, Trump is disinterested in governing, period. And so, you know, the notion that he would be involved yeah. in, in any real sense in terms of um, implementing strict rules to prevent c- civilian casualties or doing, frankly, anything that military and CIA leaders do not want to do is fucking ludicrous. <laughs>
2: There's been growing outrage among people who have heard about this and many people haven't heard about this, uh, about a series of airstrikes on Mosul, Iraq that appears to have left anywhere from 100 to 200 civilians dead. Although it's, it's unclear exactly how many different airstrikes and locations add up to the total death toll. This was a US led coalition, which has confirmed that they hit a vehicle filled with explosives on March 17th, and separately that they're reviewing a number of different airstrikes that took place around those dates. But we do not yet have a confirmed death toll. There's an ongoing investigation into this. Numerous sources have been on the ground there and have corroborated the story that, yes, there are civilian bodies everywhere, including women and children, although the exact number we're still uh, not clear on. It could be 130. The Iraqi military says that 61 confirmed bodies have been pulled and that there are 50, 60 more remaining to be sort of added to the official tally. The LA times reporter Molly Hennessy Fisk visited the area with a civil defense group a few days ago and told CNN that she saw at least 50 dead bodies and body parts in the rubble in addition to the official count of bodies already pulled. It's horrible, it's tragic, and we're going to be focusing on that aspect of it uh, extensively, but here's what's not being discussed. whatever the number ultimately is, this is what Trump promised. This is a promise that Donald Trump made and is keeping. Remember when Donald Trump said the following we
4: correct war yeah. well, we see that the other thing is, is with the terrorists you have to take out their families.
10: when you get these terrorists, you have to take out their families they they care about their lives. Don't kid yourself. Mr. But they Trump. say they don't care about the lives. You have to take out their family.
2: That was not the only time Donald Trump said something like that. Let's take hey, a you look mentioned at the families two. going after the families. What, is that, what does that mean? Well, How would I would go after,
4: well, at least I would certainly go after the wives who absolutely knew what was happening. And I guess your definition of what I do, I'm going to leave that to your imagination. But I
2: will tell you, I would be very tough on families because the families know what's happening. This is what that looks like. This is what Trump voters voted for. We all knew when Trump said that, Pat, that that was going to lead to innocent people being killed. When you go after the families, a a very haphazard approach, you end up with tons of people dying, many of whom are totally innocent so far. And this is horrible. Trump's big accomplishment, or at least his most notable promise kept is bombing innocent civilians. I wonder if the Trump supporters like this. I genuinely don't know. Trump has not followed through on basically any other campaign promise except killing women and children that may or may not have any connection whatsoever to terrorists. It's absolutely sickening to hear him say
3: that. And our buddy over at Secular Talk, Kyle Kalinsky, actually talks about this. Yeah. And he says that Democrats should have made this a bigger point in the election because Mm. just to focus on Donald Trump's temperament wasn't really enough. This is something that's so horrific that it affects most people and pretty much everyone's
2: against this, right? Well, I don't know. That's the question. I mean, where are the Trump supporters who are saying, yeah, I, yeah, I I voted for this insofar as Trump told me he was going to do this and I voted for him, even if I didn't like this particular, particular thing. And I know we joke about blame Obama, 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 Obama. Obama is being blamed for this by some committed Trumpists. I know you're probably thinking how could, how, how is that possible? The argument that some Trump supporters are making is that Obama loosened some of the rules of engagement in his last months in office to make it easier to go after ISIS in Iraq. So therefore this is all Obama's fault. Folks, Trump is under no obligation to take advantage of any loosening of rules that President Obama may have done to go and kill dozens of civilians. Part of personal responsibility is not blaming everything on the prior president. This is the exact opposite of responsibility. And again, Trump said he would do this and now he is. And I'm waiting for Trump supporters to denounce it. And we criticized
3: Obama for the drone strikes and the civilian casualties, Absolutely. but the difference is I think when Obama was informed that civilians may have perished, he would be actually upset about this and demand right. that we do better. Donald Trump, it seems like that was his goal the whole time.
2: Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know how upset Obama was and we were we were tough on Obama about the drone strikes, so I don't want to minimize that at all. But what we do know is Trump, for example, with that yet bo- the botched Yemen raid, which led to 30 civilian deaths and the death of an American Navy SEAL. He approved that casually over dinner with I think it was Mattis and Jared Kushner or, or whatever, wasn't even bothered to be in the situation room for it. So Trump promised this. Here is a campaign promise Trump is keeping that he is going to be bombing innocent civilians and he is doing it bigly. This is for the ones who were killed because some rich men got into a globe spanning dick measuring contest. I don't give a fuck which side. to them, you're nothing to them.
1: The big marches happening over the next few weekends will likely have an additional anti-war component now that Trump has bombed Syria, provoked North Korea, and dropped the Moab, the largest and most expensive non-nuclear bomb we had in our military arsenal on Afghanistan. We encourage you to get in the streets for those marches, but also organize local actions in your communities in the days in between to voice your rejection of American imperialism and the war economy, and in support of multilateral diplomatic strategies and solutions. Calling Congress to express these opinions is also crucial to making our voices heard. But in addition to rapid response actions, we can work locally and personally in the longer term to create the world we want to live in. Code Pink, the women-led grassroots anti-war organization founded during the Bush years, has launched a campaign to help raise awareness and encourage reflection about the fact that each and every one of us is invested in the war economy. We invest by the ways we live and the decisions we make each day but they believe, as I do, that we can divest from the war economy and cultivate a just, local peace economy that creates conditions conducive to life by redirecting our investments to our local communities and people. The fact is that the war economy is killing us. America's been at war for the last 14 years, or four decades, depending on how you count, and now Trump has put us on the brink of multiple new escalations. This perpetual war, the widening wealth gap, and refusal to deal with Existential issues, like climate change, are inextricably linked. The wealthy few hold an immense amount of power and control political, social, and economic systems to safeguard and expand their power. As Code Pink explains, the situation has resulted in, quote, a social, ecological, economic, and political crisis that threatens life on Earth, unquote. On the local Peace Economy campaign page on their website, Code Pink writes quote, Even though there is evidence that shows that humans are predisposed to be cooperative and sharing, the war economy survives by creating the experience of scarcity that forces the reliance on greed, selfishness, competition, and a sense that we are separate. Unquote. Head over to codepink.org backslash peace economy to read more about the campaign, take the peace economy pledge, and read the next steps to begin growing your peace economy now. The next steps include questions to ask yourself to see where in your life you are not living your values, a list of suggested organizations and causes to engage with that align with the peace economy goals, how and where to invest financially in your local community, and much more. The segment notes include all of the links to this information, as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestofleft.com. So if supporting an economy that promotes peace over war is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about fighting the war economy by growing the local peace economy via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. Mr. Rogers once said, quote, we live in a world in which we need to share responsibility. It's easy to say, it's not my child, not my community, not my world, not my problem. Then there are those who see the need to respond. I consider those people my heroes. Unquote.
6: Activism. Mm-hmm. Come on out from in front of the television. Bust out of your self-imposed media prison There's a whole big world out there, y'all And some serious stuff is going down Civil war intolerance, AIDS obliteration The usual madness, but not enough frustration About what's troubling Earth's nations The spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days And it will not be your saving grace
7: Why not replace your dreams of gracing life's stage
10: With action You... draw this back to the uh, beginning of the 1980s and uh, the promulgation of the Carter Doctrine uh, that that the, when the U.S. began garrisoning uh, large uh, amounts of military uh, personnel and equipment in Saudi Arabia, this, this was the culmination of the Carter Doctrine. What was the Carter Doctrine?
9: Well, uh, again, uh, d- just to give a little bit more uh, historical context here, if we look at the Post-war period, the Cold War, uh, the U.S. has chosen for the first time in its history, uh, after 1945, to maintain on a permanent basis very substantial military power. We choose to become a military superpower. But in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, the, the focus of strategic attention is on the defense of Western Europe and the defense of East Asia. Those are the two places that we're willing to fight. During that entire period of time, minimal minimal us presence anywhere in the islamic world because we don't care that much about the about the persian gulf uh uh central asia and and the like that changes in 1979 as a result of two events the first event is the overthrow of the shah and the second event is the one i already alluded to which was this, the the soviet invasion of afghanistan those two put together then inspired jimmy carter who who in january of 1980 desperately hoping to win a second term but being viewed as a weak and ineffective president inspire him in january of 1980 to promulgate the carter doctrine which is a specific statement that now defines the persian gulf as a vital us national security interest and what that means is that's a place we are willing to fight for just as we were then willing to fight for western europe or fight for uh, korea and uh, and japan so that statement then puts in motion what becomes a, a, a process of militarizing U.S. policy, step-by-step, step, larger presence, greater willingness to intervene in conflicts, large and small, uh, brief and protracted, leading us up to where we are today, which I think, in um, many people, I think define as, in essence, a state of, of permanent war. War has become a normal condition. Nobody expects That the war in which we are engaged, whatever you want to call it, if you don't want to call it the war for the greater Middle East, nobody expects that that war is going to end anytime soon. Indeed, I would argue that nobody in Washington has a clue about how to end that war.
10: Jimmy Carter didn't uh just put on a blindfold and 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 poke at the Persian Gulf no. with a pin out of uh sheer randomness that had followed the uh the oil shock of the early 1970s yes. right and this was a, a reported response to that
9: it was and and uh one of, one of the the tragic elements of this story is that that Carter himself did not wish to embark upon this this military course of action uh is a very famous speech worth Worth reading uh, that he made in the summer of 1979. It's called his Malaise Speech. It's an utterly inappropriate name to stick to it. But Carter goes on national TV, and in the context of this of this you know, real concern about the American way of life somehow being threatened because we no longer have guaranteed access to plentiful supplies of uh, supplies of oil, he goes he goes on national television. He says, "My fellow Americans, maybe the problem here is not that we don't have enough oil." Maybe the problem here is that we have bought into what is a false understanding of freedom. We've, we've gone down the wrong path. We've become selfish. We've become materialistic. We have forfeited the values that, in his opinion, uh, initially made America great. And so what, what Carter was saying is let's take on this challenge of an energy shortage by changing the way we live. Let's opt for virtue rather than for selfishness and materialism. Of course, I mean, this had no, no appeal to the American
10: people. Doesn't even sound good to me now.
9: Well, you're right. You know, here, I got a good idea. I want you to sacrifice. And Americans are not, we don't look to our politicians to say, call on us to sacrifice, except in some certain circumstances like World War II. We want the politicians to say, there is going to be more tomorrow. And and so Carter's attempt to avoid going down this path uh, was derided, and I think basically the Carter Doctrine speech of January 1980 was a, a concession of defeat uh, on his part. The only way he thought he might have a chance to beat Reagan uh, in the upcoming election was to was to get tough. Uh, and so without, uh, there's no doubt in my mind that Carter had zero understanding of exactly what was going to evolve over the following decades. But he let loose the dogs
10: of war. Uh, just as a, a historical footnote, uh, the U.S. did have w- one moment when it, it took some interest in the Persian Gulf area prior to then, because uh, the CIA overthrew the democratically elected government of Iran in 1953. Right. Fair enough.
9: Yeah. Fa- fair enough. I mean uh, that 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 it, I I overstated the point saying we didn't care. Yeah. We did. We didn't care enough to have that be a place that we were going to invest military power in. Doesn't mean that we were not involved in various sundry uh, shenanigans. And of course, the episode you cite also ends up being uh, an element in the in, in the narrative as it unfolds. Because the Iranian Revolution of 1979, uh, from the point of view of the Iranian revolutionaries, was inspired in some respects by their... Uh, not only their desire to get rid of of the Shah, but their determination to get rid of the of the American presence in Iran and influence in Iran, which they perceived, whatever we think, what they perceived to be utterly uh, nefarious. So, yes, that's also part of the story.
10: Yeah. And another footnote, uh, while the United States was supporting and you point this out in your book, while the United States was supporting Saddam during the Iran-Iraq war, it uh, somewhat incoherently was also uh, selling arms to Iran.
9: Well, not, not only somewhat incoherently, <laughs> utterly incoherently. Uh, I mean, the reason that's, that's important to remember that, I, I think is that is a prime illustration of, 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 of the absence of any strategic clarity with regard to purpose. I think one of the reasons I might have a hard time selling this idea of a war for the greater Middle East and that links a whole laundry list of military enterprises. One of the reasons I'll have a hard time is because people have become accustomed to simply seeing every one of these episodes as kind of a, a standalone proposition, whether it's peacekeepers in Lebanon or, or bombing Libya or humanitarian intervention in Somalia or going back time and again to Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, where we, we have become conditioned to think of them as distinct episodes. The key argument I'm trying to make in the book is that only when we acknowledge that they are part of a larger enterprise can we then assess the extent of our failure. And when you cite things like the Iran-Contra affair where, where, where Ronald Reagan is illegally providing weapons to the Iranians, while they're calling us the great Satan, at the same time that we're supporting Saddam Hussein against Iran, that's a classic illustration of the absence of any clear thinking by the people in Washington.
10: In answer to the question, what the heck were we doing this for, which could be asked about so many of these military ventures that we've been involved in the greater Middle East, uh, we go back to the Carter Doctrine, which was uh, a reaction to the oil embargo. And your analysis is that, Uh, most of this stuff was, at least in the, in the instant, uh, designed to preserve access to the, to the oil of the Middle East via the, the free passage through the Persian Gulf.
9: Well, you know, it was in, in a, an immediate and concrete sense. That is to say, uh, at the outset, uh, the war for the greater Middle East was a war for oil. But my argument is that even from the outset, if not uh, clearly articulated, it was about much more. Uh, it was about uh, affirming our uh, self-image as the dominant power in the world, not simply dominant in a military sense, but but dominant in a in an ideological sense. There is a deep-seated. This is really an. Uh, this is an, This is a part of American exceptionalism. There's a deep-seated conviction. Uh, certainly widely held in our political establishment, but also wide, widely held among ordinary Americans that we define the future of humankind. That our values, our arrangements, our institutions, whether we can call it democracy using kind of a shorthand term, but it's much more than that. The American way of life determines the way the world is going. And events in 1979, citing the Iranian revolution as a, as a good example, but a multitude of events since, particularly in the Islamic world, challenge that notion, challenge that notion that we define the future. And I think uh, psychologically, uh, there's, a, there's an enormous reluctance on the part of Americans. And again, I would emphasize particularly Americans in the political establishment to to give up this claim to our specialness our chosenness is a great reluctance to take on board the possibility that while we certainly are a great power that maybe we are simply one nation among many in the long course of course of history uh and so many of the efforts under and i think this is in spades true after after 911 George W. Bush is, is president and, and, and it immediately responds to the 9-11 attacks by, by saying on national television, look, we have faced this kind of adversary before. This, this is the equivalent of the hateful ideologies of the 20th century. This is Nazism. This is, this is communism. And just as we destroyed those challenges, we will destroy this one. That is to say, we will demonstrate through the use of military power that we define the future. And I think at, at root, uh, that really has been one of the driving considerations in this, in, in this entire enterprise to, to, to affirm, to validate uh, American exceptionalism. And unfortunately, uh, very few of the military outcomes that we have been able to achieve support that notion. I mean, at, the, at the present moment where where we look at Iraq, I mean, in my narrative, we're now in the fourth Gulf War. You know, the first one was 80 to 88. The second Gulf War was going after Saddam with Desert Storm. The third, the third Gulf War was the war of 2003 to 2011. Lo and behold, here we are again, uh, once again involved in another Gulf War uh, that may or may not end, end in success operationally. But when you take those four Gulf Wars together... It sure the heck doesn't look like we're making a lot of progress in bringing harmony or democracy or even order to to that place, which really is the the focal point or the nexus of the war for the greater Middle East going back to 1980.
1: We just heard clips today starting with David Pakman explaining why bombing Syria was a seriously bad idea. Politically reactive took the wider angle perspective on American militarism. Intercepted encouraged us to question the standard media narrative of U.S. military actions. Humorless queers argued that Trump is too ignorant and manipulatable to have much impact on U.S. foreign policy. David Pakman pointed out the one campaign promise that Trump is fulfilling is killing lots of women and children. Today's activism is in support of Code Pink's peace economy campaign, and Le spoke with Andrew Basevich about the Carter Doctrine and the birth of our Middle East forever war. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you.
4: Hi, Jay. This is uh, Tyler from Brunswick, Maine. I'm just calling to say thank you for your most recent podcast uh, concerning disability rights. Uh, I've been a listener to the show for about a good eight, nine years, and I think in that time I've never heard a podcast addressing the specific issue of disability rights. So I have cerebral palsy, and I feel like my concerns have never been really addressed in mainstream media. I and mean, even some of my go-to places that I go for political consumption, like Young Turks, uh, Jimmy Dore, Ring of fire, those places. So it was just really nice to hear some pieces addressing some of those things that I feel like that needs to be addressed. Uh, one of the biggest points of the show that I liked was the uh, interview uh, con- concerning uh, the way media handles disability, how, how it is to be, be disabled. And especially hate, like... Like, like what the inter- what the person being interviewed said about being disabled for a day, and I find that very patronizing, insulting. So I just want to say thank you, and I look forward to coming on the show and keep up the good work. Thanks, Jay. Have a good day. Bye.
11: Hey, Jay. Uh, David Suggs. I'm actually a uh, conservative from the lower part of South Carolina. So. I listen to your show regularly and uh, I actually listen to it for to actually trying to understand where the other side is coming from. So it, it may be unique, you know, me calling in. But I do have a question. And, and my main issue is it's from a logical standpoint that if you have it, the main thing for me is, is the healthcare thing. And if you have a right to somebody else's labor, if, if that's what a right means that seems to be very similar to slavery. I mean, it it seems like you have a right to somebody else's work. And I I just don't believe that. And on most of the other issues, to be honest, I'm I'm pretty close to y'all's side. I do believe that women and blacks and, and the minority groups should all be equal and that there should be an effort on the side of government to achieve that. But in terms of, you know, how how we achieve that, that's, that's kind of the issue for me. Um, I'd love your response, and uh, I listen to you both times a week, and I uh, hope to hear from you soon. So thank you for your work. Um, I appreciate how, honestly, you believe in what you do. I would hope that, that most people on the, on the opposite side of me believe in the same way. Um, I would never... I won't say never. I, I don't currently believe in in your side, but I would defend to the death you right to say it. But thank you very much.
1: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or explanation of something so we all understand it better, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. And, of course, thanks to David, who we just heard from, and his question. Sort of a nice slow pitch right over the center of the plate. It's nice to not always have to get into the weeds on something and and be able to take a step back and just have a nice introductory political philosophy discussion. So to start off, let me help out David a little bit because he skipped right from healthcare to slavery, and he. I think he skipped a bit in the middle, so he may have lost some of you. I'll try to fill in that gap. My understanding is that the argument he was making had to do with taxation, and there's this libertarian idea that uh, taxation is akin to slavery, and the argument goes, as best as I can follow, like this, you have to work to make money, and the government taxes you on the money you earn, therefore the government, because they can force you to pay those taxes under penalty of... Imprisonment. They, in a certain way, if you squint and tilt your head, own in giant air quotes your labor, not you, of course, but your labor. And then they decide to define slavery as the ownership of one's labor. Therefore, the government owns your labor and you are enslaved to the government through taxation. And that they use taxation to pay for a health insurance policy like uh, Medicare for All. And therefore, health insurance is like slavery. Now, I would say that comparing health care to slavery is absurd on the face, unless you twist yourself into this ridiculous semantic knot. But David, don't get defensive. You didn't come up with that yourself. I know you didn't. So let's just take a minute to question it and think critically about this. And so speaking as humans, uh, rather than libertarian robots for a moment, the comparison between healthcare and slavery goes like this. First, think about everything you know about slavery, One person owning another, forcing them to labor, maybe in the fields, maybe somewhere else with no compensation. Uh, They could freely rape that person, freely beat them, could steal their children and sell them also into slavery. Uh, Or, you know, maybe think of modern day human, human trafficking and sex slavery, that sort of thing. On the other hand... You have a system of taxation that citizens of a country vote on democratically and have a say in how that money is spent through their elected representatives, and this is all part of sort of a social contract that ultimately benefits everyone because those dollars pay for the infrastructure that society all depends on. Uh, So, you know, you started by saying you had a question about logic, so if you're presented with a philosophical principle that manages to conclude that paying taxes or the government running a health insurance system is equatable to slavery, then one should, I would hope, logically conclude that there must be something flawed with that principle— It doesn't miss the mark by a little, it misses it by a lot. It's like if you typed in two plus two into a calculator and it returned 500 as the answer, you wouldn't start to then question whether or not two plus two was actually four like you always thought it was, or if maybe now it's 500 because it says so. No, you would know right away that the calculator was broken. Now, if you want to have a rational conversation about balancing personal freedom with the needs of the common good and how tax policy plays into all of that, well, then that's called America. Once you start saying that taxation is slavery... You're just using intentionally inflammatory propaganda created by rich people to trick non-rich people into hating taxes so much that they'll support massive tax cuts for the rich when they themselves are the ones who will be the most harmed by those tax cuts. It's not a coincidence that a lot of rich people are libertarians. So let's back up. The real ideological divide on health insurance is this. Which do you care about more, outcomes or principles? And I mean that seriously. Think about that question. Do you care about the outcomes of a given policy more or less than you care about that policy adhering to a preconceived set of principles that you have adopted? For me, my political philosophy is two words reduce suffering. So I find things that cause suffering, like racism, sexism, ableism, bombing innocent civilians, extreme wealth inequality, lack of affordable health care, and so on. Then I look around to see what policies could help reduce the suffering related to those problems. So getting back to health care, the only question left is which health insurance system reduces suffering the best? Now, how we define best is where I think the debate should actually be, I would include health outcomes, obviously, but I would also include costs and even freedom into that calculation. For instance, I wouldn't decide to enslave doctors and force them to work for free to bring costs down, and I wouldn't enforce mandatory doctor visits and invasive tests for all citizens even if that resulted in better health outcomes for everyone because that would be too invasive and intrusive on people's freedom. Now, Universal health insurance systems have already been shown to have better health outcomes across the board and to cost less. So they win those two rounds with flying colors, but how do they stack up in the freedom scale? The first thing to keep in mind is that there are two kinds of freedom, freedom from and freedom to. And the two are often, though not always, at odds with each other. On one hand, there's the freedom from the requirement to pay for health insurance. That's what the Republicans want. They, they, they don't want there to be a fee. They don't want there to be taxes that pay for health insurance. They don't want anything like that. They just want everyone to be on their own to freely choose to either buy health insurance or not. And, you know, maybe they have the money for it and maybe they don't. On the other, there are all of the freedoms that come with a universal health system. So, yes, you lose the freedom from the requirement to pay for health insurance, but you also gain the freedom to, for instance, choose your doctor, something that private health insurance companies don't allow. You'd also gain the freedom to make decisions about your career completely separate from your healthcare needs, something our employer based health insurance system doesn't allow. And then even American companies would experience more freedom because they would be unburdened from the cost of health benefits for their employees and could then compete on a level playing field with foreign corporations whose governments already manage universal health systems. So those companies could either become more profitable or lower the price of their goods and services, or they could uh, then negotiate with their employees and pay their employees more because they don't have all those uh, health insurance costs to pay for. Anyways, it it opens up a lot of opportunities, but on the individual level, there's a lot of gained freedom from not having to do all that paperwork, not having the stress of wondering if your health insurance is actually going to cover what they say it's going to cover because those private companies work very hard at not paying your claims if they can avoid it. So a lot of freedom comes along uh, with a universal health system, and yes, It is balanced against losing the freedom to not pay for health insurance through taxation. But, again, that's what America's all about. We balance individual freedoms with the needs of the common good. Now, finally, keep in mind that health insurance, the way we pay for stuff, is completely separate from health care, the treatment we actually receive. So whenever you hear someone point out that people in foreign countries come to America to get treatment as an argument for why we must then logically already have the best healthcare system, know that they are either ignorant of the situation or intentionally trying to deceive you. America has extremely good healthcare personnel and technology for those who can afford it. That is not the debate. The debate is over how to organize our health insurance system so that people who aren't rich can also have access to health care. Foreigners who come to the U.S. for treatment never have to deal with our insurance system. They pay for it out of pocket. Lucky them. As always, keep those comments coming in. The number again, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including